Let's grab a seat, pull out your Bible, and let's turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And this morning we want to read the first six verses as we talk about the second commandment. The second in God's top ten list. Exodus chapter 20. Lord, we ask that you bless this morning's Bible study. Speak to our hearts. Encourage us, Lord, by your spirit, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, we read, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. This morning I brought with me a list composed by Dan Briotti entitled, The Cell Phone Ten Commandments. The Cell Phone Ten Commandments. Here are ten absolutes for cell phone users. Number one, thou shalt not subject defenseless onlookers to cell phone conversations. Number two, thou shalt not set thy ringer to play La Cucaracha every time the phone rings, or Beethoven's Fifth, or the Bee Gees, or any other annoying melody. Number three, thou shalt turn thy cell phone off during public performances, especially church. And I actually added that, especially church. <laughs> Number four, thou shalt not wear more than two wireless devices on thy belt. This is not a problem yet, but as their popularity increases, Batman-like utility belts are next. Number five, and this is very serious, thou shalt not die while driving. Did you high schoolers hear that? Good. Number six, thou shalt not wear thy earpiece in the presence of thy friends. That can be a bit rude. Number seven, thou shalt not speak louder on thy cell phone than, that, than thou would on any other phone. If your signal goes out, speaking louder doesn't help. <laughs> Number eight, thou shalt not grow too attached to thy cell phone. Dependency on constant communication is not healthy. At work, go nuts. At home, give it a rest. Number nine, thou shalt not attempt to impress others with the style of thy cell phone. And number 10, when you enter a restaurant and sit down at the table, do not slap your cell phone down on the tabletop just in case it rings. Could you be a little less conspicuous? You'll hear it just as well if it's in your pocket or clipped onto your belt. You know, a quick search of the internet will turn up not just the cell phone Ten Commandments, but various sets of other Ten Commandments as well. In fact, there's the Ten Commandments for computer programmers and baseball's Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments for good historical writing. And the Ten Commandments for stress management. And the Ten Commandments of golf etiquette. 
and the Ten Commandments of Firearm Safety. And what I needed after all this searching on the internet was the Ten Commandments of Internet Searching. <laughs> but not only are there different sets of Ten Commandments, even the ten that God gave to Moses get divided in different ways. Jews and Protestants consider verse 3, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. But then the second commandment starts with verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Thus the first two commandments for Jews and Protestants are no other gods and no graven images. Whereas Roman Catholics clump verses 3 through 6 together as one command. And they get a total number of 10 by dividing the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, into actually two commands. Roman Catholics consider the first commandment as simply a prohibition against idolatry. But I believe there is more to it than that. The first commandment in verse 3 focuses on the object of our worship. God says to us, no other gods, only me. The first commandment eliminates all rivals. It excludes from our lives anything that might compete for our affection for God or our devotion to God. Only one God. This is a non-negotiable for us. But in verses 4 through 6, the subject changes. Here the focus is on the observance of our worship. Not just who we're to worship, but how we're to worship Him. You see, the second commandment is more than just a prohibition against idolatry. It's a lesson on how the one true God wants to be worshipped. God is a jealous God. And there are methods of worship that please Him, and there are practices that don't. <clears throat> Here's the premise behind the second commandment. It's not enough to just love and worship God. If your love is sincere, you will love and worship God in the way that God wants to be loved and worshipped. This is a principle basic to all relationships. Believe you me, the breakthrough in my marital life occurred when I realized that if I really loved Kathy, I would love her in the way that she wants and needs to be loved, not just in the way that was convenient or easy for me. That's not real love at all. When Kathy is tired of losing kids in the backyard because the grass is waist high, when the dog goes out and then disappears for hours. Me then bringing her home candy and daisies is not what she wants. It doesn't cut it, literally. <laughs> I could buy my wife a whole Russell Stover's franchise and she wouldn't care. But if I go out and mow the lawn for her, or if I make Mac do it, <laughs> it has the same effect either way. She falls in love with me all over again. You see, this is a non-negotiable in relationships. If you love anyone, be it your wife or your parents or your kids or God, you will love them in the way they desire to be loved. And this is a principle that's been all but forgotten by many Christians. People today like being Christians as long as they don't have to be like Christ. As long as they can make up their own rules or fashion a likable, comfortable God, a God who will make no demands, 
who will never impose his will, who agree with their every decision, who will fit in with their lifestyle and overlook, even justify their sin. America is supposedly a Christian nation, but a recent Barna research poll highlighted our disintegrating morality. 61% of Americans now consider gambling to be a morally accepted activity. 60% believe it's okay for a man and woman to live together before marriage. 59% see nothing wrong with lust and sexual fantasies, including pornography. 45% see nothing wrong with abortion. 42% are no, long, no longer considered even adultery to be a sin. And 30% feel the same way about homosexuality. Here are folks who have ignored or chosen to disagree with important biblical teachings, and yet if asked, many of them would still claim to be Christians. This is why the second commandment is so vital. It reiterates that it's not enough to just worship God, to just come to church and sing His praise and say we love Him. For our worship to be meaningful, we have to accept who God is and play by His rules and submit to His notions of right and wrong and worship God in the way He desires to be worshipped. On the sixth day of creation, God created man in His own image and in His own likeness. And sadly, ever since, rebellious men have tried to create a God in their own image and in their own likeness. We try to fashion a God who agrees with us. A God that we can control. And here is the non-negotiable for us that we find in the second commandment. There are ways that God wants to be worshipped and there are ways that He does not want to be worshipped. And a sincere love for God will acknowledge the differences. Guys, the first commandment assures our accuracy in our worship. Be sure you worship the right God. While the second commandment ensures the integrity of our worship. For it challenges us to worship God in the right way. Our worship is not incomplete until it's the right God, the right way. Last week, I quoted Joshua's words to the sons and daughters of the Hebrews who exited Egypt. Joshua chapter 24 verse 14 commands that next generation to put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. It's amazing to me that while in Egypt, the Hebrews actually worshipped the gods of Egypt. The Egyptians had deified the Nile River, various animals, the sun, the moon, even the Pharaoh. And sadly, the Hebrews joined in that worship until God revealed Himself through His servant Moses. But not only did the Hebrews worship the gods of Egypt, they worshipped those gods in the way that the Egyptians were accustomed to worship. The Hebrews not only accepted the Egyptian gods, but they mimicked the Egyptian style of worship. You see, Egypt was into idols. The Egyptians represented their gods with physical images made from metal and wood and stone and jewels and ivory. And then they paid homage to these idols with lewd and cruel and immoral behaviors. Temple prostitution was common. Wild, drunken orgies were common ways of worshiping these pagan gods. Human sacrifice, even child sacrifice was practiced. The Hebrews not only worshiped idols, but they did so through evil means. 
In fact, this is what happens when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the law from God. The multitudes at base camp grew restless. God had worked mighty miracles by the hand of Moses to deliver the Hebrews from the clutches of Pharaoh. In the process, each of those miracles that God worked were designed to attack and mock a specific Egyptian deity. Through the ten plagues, God proved conclusively that He was supreme, that He was the one true God. And none of the Hebrews argued with that notion. They accepted that truth. But you see, Moses was their tangible link with this one true God. And now Moses was somewhere, we don't know where, somewhere up there on that mountain. They weren't sure if he was dead or alive. And that's when someone suggested that they fashion a replacement, a gold calf. When Aaron took their gold earrings and melted them down and turned them into a calf, he wasn't creating another God, a false God. He was creating a physical representation of the one true God. Something tangible, something physical that they could grab and hold that would remind them of God. A, a replacement for Moses, not God. Exodus chapter 32 verses 4 and 5 tell us, Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and molded a calf. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. They weren't trying to create a different God. This is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were simply trying to represent the true God through this graven image. In fact, he says, tomorrow is a feast for the Lord. And the word he uses there, Lord, is the word Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the covenant name that the Hebrews used for the one true God. Why Aaron chose to represent God as a golden calf, we're not sure. In Revelation chapter 4, it is interesting that the living creatures who surround the throne of God in heaven, the cherubim, are said to have the face of a calf. Perhaps he was trying to draw on that connection. Certainly, though, Aaron wasn't trying to create a false god. In his mind, at least, he was fashioning a graven image of the one true God. Rather than a violation of the first command, the golden calf was a breach of the second commandment. Apparently, Aaron tried to worship the Hebrew God in the Egyptian way. He made an idol, as the Egyptians did. And then we're told the people paraded themselves around this idol in lewd and in immoral behavior. Exodus 32 verse 6 tells us, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. The Hebrews partied hardy like they did in Egypt, and they worshipped God in a worldly way. It was unholy worship of a holy God. And in God's eyes, it was all just a bunch of bull. 500 years later, 500 years later, when King Solomon passed away, a similar mistake was made. Solomon left his kingdom to his son Rehoboam. But Rehoboam was not as wise as his father. He made the cardinal sin, committed the cardinal sin of all politicians. He raised taxes. 
And boy, it provoked a revolt. The people didn't like it. And the northern ten tribes, led by a man named Jeroboam, split from the southern tribe of Judah, and they formed their own kingdom. But you see, Jeroboam had a problem. God had stipulated in the Old Testament law that all of the Hebrews should come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship him. But Jerusalem was in Rehoboam's borders. And Jeroboam didn't want his citizens vacationing in the backyard of a rival king. And so Jeroboam established his own religion. Again, it was the worship of God, but it was not the way God wanted to be worshipped. He set up two representations of God in the northern cities of Bethel and Dan. And guess what he used as those representations? Two golden calves. Here's what Jeroboam said to the Hebrews in 1 Kings 12. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. The exact words Aaron had used 500 years earlier. And he set one up in Bethel. And the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin. And notice those last words. Now this thing became a sin. Here is the problem whenever you employ a graven image in your worship. It will eventually lead you to sin. I don't care how sincere you start out. It might be rosary beads or a crucifix or a painting or an icon or a little grotto, or maybe a cross on the wall, or a picture of Jesus. But whenever you use a physical image as a help in your worship, it will eventually turn into a hindrance. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics stress the use of icons and emblems and symbols in their worship. Statues and carvings of the Virgin Mary, or paintings of the apostles, or the saints of old, are all used. But I think they're done so at great peril to the worshiper. For God knows that what can start out so innocently can eventually lead us astray. Often good intentions turn sour. That's why God gives to us this second commandment. To keep our worship pure. To keep it from becoming polluted. Jim Cavazell was the actor who played Jesus in the film The Passion of the Christ. And in my opinion there was certainly nothing wrong with the making of that film. Or Jim portraying the role of Christ as long as it was viewed as a dramatization. But on a recent trip to Latin America, Jim was mobbed by moviegoers. People began to beg him to work miracles and to forgive them of their sins. They began to pray to him. And I believe the Roman Catholic training, their attachment to the visible Intangible aids in worship made it difficult for these people to distinguish between the actor and the actual Savior that he portrayed. You see, when God is constantly represented to you in some material form, in the end, the worshiper will make the symbol more important than the substance. The relic will replace the reality. Did you hear about the little boy, the first grader, who was busy drawing his mom asked him, what are you working on, buddy? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. She sort of gently scolded him, son, it's impossible to draw God. No one knows what God looks like. The little boy fired back, mommy, they will when I get done with my picture. 
Don't you know that if we did have a literal photograph of God, or even of God in the flesh, our Lord Jesus, don't you know that before long we would end up worshiping that photograph? I can see it now. It would be encased somewhere in some shrine, in some temple somewhere. People would come and bow down before it and pray to it and offer sacrifices before it. And in doing so, they would neglect the God that picture represented. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 tells us, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Over the years, certain Puritan groups and the Amish, for example, have interpreted this injunction as a prohibition against all expressions of art and illustration. These groups say that a painting or a photo or a sculpture or a tapestry or a movie about Jesus becomes a graven image and thus is forbidden by the second commandment. On a trip to Israel several years ago, we walked through Mia Sharim, which was an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood there in Jerusalem. And, and as we got out of the bus and started in, I carried my camera with me. Well, just before we entered, our guide told us that the residents would frown on us if we took their pictures. In fact, they might even throw rocks at us or try to take our camera from us. To the ultra-Orthodox Jew, a photograph... Any work of art, for that matter, is a violation of the second commandment. I think these kinds of extreme positions are a misrepresentation of verse 4. The key to this verse is the last line. Read it with me. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. The prohibition is not against producing or enjoying art, photos or paintings or movies. It's against using them in our worship. You shall not bow down to them, he says. If the Amish or the Orthodox Jews are right in their interpretation of the second commandment, and all forms of art are sinful, then God breaks his own law later in the book of Exodus. For when he constructs the tabernacle, God equips men with artistic skill. Exodus 35 tells us that God filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God and wisdom, and understanding, and knowledge, and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach. God adorned and decorated the tabernacle with artistic works. He instructed the craftsmen, remember, to embroider angels into the sacred curtains. In fact, the two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And you remember, on the lid of the Ark sat two golden angels, another example of artistry. Guys, there is certainly nothing wrong with a painting or a snapshot or any visible, tangible image, just as long as that image is not used and relied on in our worship. There are three points that make the second commandment so important. First is humanity's tendency. Second is God's transcendency. And third is worship's transferency. Tendency, transcendency, 
and transferency. The first reason the second commandment is so vital is humanity's tendency. God knows that we are fleshly, physical, tangible, visible people. That we like to see and grab and touch to believe. But that's not how God wants us to relate to Him. Thomas said that he would believe in the risen Christ if he could only touch his scars in his hands. But when Jesus appeared, he told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. God wants us to relate to him and worship him by faith, not by feeling or by sight. Paul closes his first letter to Timothy with a doxology. He says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. Unlike the idols of Egypt, the one true God is an invisible God. He can't be seen with the naked eye or touched with flesh and bone. As one author puts it, God is not an aspect of nature, but a reality greater than the universe. He admonishes us not to drop our eyes down to nature for an easy fix. God wants to raise us to another level and teach us to relate to Him spiritually in our hearts. God is a spirit. And according to John chapter 4, verse 24, those who worship Him, Jesus says, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The worship of God should always be spiritual. When we employ carved images in our worship, we stunt our spiritual growth. Rather than cultivate a heart connection with God, we create an attachment to the physical, material world, to stuff and things. Rather than develop a spiritual awareness, rather than stretch out our faith, we become more earthbound. This is why it bothers me when I hear a person who says that their worship of God is dependent on a mood or a specific environment. I get concerned when people say things like, well, I can't really worship God unless I'm outside under a tree. Or I can't worship God unless I'm in a church. Or I can't worship God unless the church has stained glass windows. Or I can't worship God unless there's candles and there's incense. Or I can't worship God unless I'm wearing my blue jeans and singing praise songs. Certainly the atmosphere can cut down on distractions and it can add to our appreciation of God. But it should never dictate our worship. Our worship should be spiritual. Guys, if we learn to worship God in spirit, then we can worship God anywhere, anytime, under any circumstances, in any place. In fact, we should be able to come into this room some Sundays and never say or sing a word and still worship God. Well, there is another reason why the second commandment is so vital, and that is God's transcendence. Anytime that I rely on a finite symbol to conceptualize the infinite God, in essence, I diminish Him. I put Him in a box. The symbol might help me understand one aspect of God's character or nature, but invariably it will confuse another. Central to today's culture is what postmodern thinkers call reductionism. 
It's the notion that if we keep breaking life and nature down into smaller and smaller components, eventually we'll discover the mysteries behind the universe. It's the Petri dish and the microscope and the DNA approach to life. But worship is the opposite of reductionism. Rather than break things down into understandable portions, worship focuses on the holiness and the grandness and the mystery of God. Rather than dissect God, worship admires His transcendence and His greatness. Take, for example, this jar of sand right here. What if I traveled to the Oregon coast and I went to the Oregon dunes and I grabbed some of the sand there and filled it in this jar and brought it back. Now, I didn't do that. I actually got it out of the volleyball pit out there. <laughs> but what if I had done that, gone all the way to Oregon and grabbed this sand and brought it back in here and held this sand up to you this morning and said, this is the Oregon coast. Would that be true? Of course not. Of course it wouldn't be true. There's so much more to the Oregon coast than just the sand in that jar. My jar would be an incomplete picture. Likewise, whenever I point to one symbol or one setting and then say that this is God to me, I'm narrowing down my understanding of God. My knowledge of God becomes fuzzy and limited and inadequate. I end up reducing God to less than He is. Guys, the way to worship God is not to reduce Him, but to exalt Him. The psalmist, the Bible's worship leader, tells us in Psalm 99 verse 9, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 69 verse 30 tells us, I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify Him with thanksgiving. Magnify Him. Exalt Him. Don't reduce Him. A physical image as an aid in your worship is ultimately a reducer rather than an exalter. I would imagine that most of us are in little danger this morning of worshiping alongside a metal image of God. But I am concerned about our mental images of God. For it's not just an icon that can become an idol. It can also happen with an idea. C.S. Lewis once said, The first prayer to pray before every other prayer is this, Lord, let it be the real you I pray to, and let it be the real me that prays. Lewis was acknowledging that often our own wrong perceptions of God can interfere with our communication with Him. Misconceptions, erroneous mental images can reduce God in our minds. Have you judged God unfairly? Have you pigeonholed God by some false understanding? Have you characterized God? Have you developed a characterization that's simply not true? It's been said, it's much worse to have a false idea of God than no idea at all. When it comes to these mental images of God, the list is endless. There are some people who envision God as Father Time. An old guy with a gray beard, hopelessly outdated and old-fashioned. 
rather than the timeless God who is forever old but forever young at the same time, who has the wisdom of the ages but is always up to something new and innovative. Or they see God as the cosmic cop out on the beat looking for somebody to bust rather than the gracious God who is rich in mercy and quick to forgive. Or they see God the Father as the Godfather. He keeps the family in line or else. Rather than the father in the parable of the prodigal who races to meet his wayward son to assure him of his love and his forgiveness and to welcome him home. Or the God of country music. A lot of people have this idea. God is man's best friend. The good old boy, the man upstairs. The friend that we only really need when we're in a heap of trouble. Rather than the sovereign God who has a plan and purpose for every decision, every detail of our lives. Or one more, the heavenly slot machine. You just pop in a prayer and if you're lucky, out pops a blessing. Rather than a God who has his own agenda and is working things according to his purpose and expects us to walk in his will. A.W. Tozer says this. I want you to remember this. If you get nothing else, if you remember nothing else, remember this. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Do you have an accurate concept of God? Understand, you won't gain it by listening to other people talk or by watching television or by reading books about God even, or by reading the newspaper, there are only two places that you can turn to get a clear, accurate, somewhat comprehensive understanding of God. You need to go to His Word. For you see, my words are the disclosures of my thoughts. And God's Word is the unveiling of who He is. And God has revealed Himself to us in two words. In His written Word the Bible, and in His living Word, Jesus Christ. If you want a picture of who God is to help guide your thoughts about God, don't turn to some man-made image, whether metal or mental. Look to Jesus. Read the Bible. And there you will get to know the otherwise unknowable God. There you'll discover the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, the third reason that this second commandment is so vital, we've talked about the human's tendency, we've talked about God's transcendency, but then finally, worship's transferency. Notice the reason in verse 5 that God is so concerned that we worship right. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. How we worship God affects the destiny of our kids and our grandkids and even future generations. You see, worship is something that is far more caught than taught. You transfer your love for God to your kids, not by talking about God or talking about that love, but by loving God yourself with a sacrificial and obvious and sincere and obedient love. When people worship right, 
When they worship God in the way He desires to be worshipped, when they worship Him in spirit and in truth, then God shows and pours out mercy. But when people steer off course in their worship, or they begin to worship selfishly, or they get worldly in their worship, or they worship God in only ways that are convenient to them, when a society forgets how to worship God right, judgment comes down on its offspring. Throughout history, when the church has compromised its worship and lost its vision of God, seldom does it affect just one generation. When a society or a culture forgets how to worship God right, it will take several generations to turn it around and to relearn those principles. You see, right worship, is like the front end of your automobile. If your steering gets knocked out of alignment, bad things happen elsewhere. Your tires begin to wear out unevenly. It affects your braking. Ultimately, it can lead to a crash. And I've seen kids crash because their parents' worship got out of alignment. This is why God says in verse 5, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, God is jealous in a good way. He has a vested interest in our lives. After all, His Son died for us. Died to save us. He he wants to show mercy and bestow blessing on us. But how can He if our devotion gets misplaced? Or if we begin to neglect Him? Hey, jealousy is not always an improper attitude. If I saw my wife in the arms of another man, trust me, I would be jealous. I would hate it. If what she pledged to only me was shared with someone else. And God has the same feelings toward us. Imagine, Dad, coming home for dinner tomorrow night. And in front of your seat at the table, your wife has set a picture frame with your photograph. She's talking to the photograph. As a matter of fact, in the middle of dinner, she even reaches over and she plants a little kiss right there on the picture frame. Your kids begin to show their schoolwork to the picture frame. All the while, you're just sort of standing over in the shadows, being ignored. After dinner, your son goes out in the backyard and he bounces the football off the picture frame a time or two instead of asking you to throw. Hey, eventually you would become jealous of all that behavior, wouldn't you? And it's not just because you're being left out. It's because your wife and your son and your family are missing out. Because a real dead is a whole lot more fun than a picture frame. This is what God feels when we lack right worship. When we fall in love with a graven image and kiss the symbol to the neglect of the Savior. Or when we stop short of truly knowing the true God and stay distracted by some false mental image of God. Or when we say... We love God and worship God, but don't make any effort to love and worship Him in the right way, in the way He desires. We might think that that kind of worship is innocent. But in the long run, it affects our kids and even future generations. Author Alan Redpath wrote these words, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he is selfish and wants us all but all to himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. 
God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. He knows that if we leave him out, we'll be missing out. God clothed himself in human flesh. Took upon his shoulders our sin and died the death that we deserved. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and he sent his Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. To bring us into fellowship with him. And now he doesn't want that fellowship to be hindered or polluted by a lack of right worship. Here is the non-negotiable we find in the second commandment. Don't just worship the right God. Worship God right. Both your future and the future of your kids and the future of our country and the future of our entire society depends on right worship. Father, we thank you for the commandments, for these ten non-negotiables, things that need to become foundational in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for this second commandment. Lord, it's not just a matter that we worship the right God, but we need to worship you in the right way. And it begins, Lord, by us humbling ourselves. And by us accepting the notion that it's, that it's not real worship unless it's the worship you desire. It's not real love unless we're loving you in the way that pleases you. Help us, Lord, to search our own hearts, to examine the integrity of our worship. Help us to be sincere worshipers, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.